Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie, and I'm here joined today um, with Dr. Lee Kaufman, who um, is a Russian-born, Israeli-Australian novelist, short story writer, essayist, and memoirist based in Melbourne. She's the author of three fiction books published in Israel in Hebrew and the memoir The Dangerous Bride, published by Melbourne University Press. Lee's also the co-editor of Rebellious Daughters, an anthology of personal essays by prominent Australian authors. Her short works have been widely published in Australia, USA, Canada, Israel, and the UK. And Lee holds a PhD in social sciences and an MA in creative writing, and is a mentor and teacher of writing. He's also a regular public speaker and a panel moderator. So thank you for joining me today, Lee. It's my absolute pleasure, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. That's all right. We're here to talk about your excellent new book, which is called Imperfect how our bodies shape the people we become. So I was wondering if you could introduce your book to us. Yes, yeah, sure. This is always sort of a, an interesting question. How do you sort of talk about your book and say it succinctly, something you spent five, uh, quite a few years writing? Um, but generally, um, interpret is my sort of attempt to understand how the way we look may um, influence our lives. And my sense is that it can um, matter in many ways, whether in terms of how we feel about ourselves or the choices we make, um, how other people respond to us, and consequently what kind of opportunities might be available to us. Now, this sounds sort of very academic, but it's actually a creative nonfiction uh, work, and it's um, a mixture of memoirs, my own story, because I have a lot of scars on my body, and also I'm a parent of a child with albinism. So it's a mixture of that sort of memoir uh, type writing plus investigative journalism where I went and I talked to other people who I call imperfect, meaning people whose appearance deviates from what we consider today to be the norm. Um, and also it involves some kind of cultural critique of uh, a look at how we think about beauty today, how we think about what is a normal body, um, and, and many other sort of issues around appearance, but also generally about how we think about difference, um, how we think about empathy, stuff like that. Just, just little stuff like that. <laughs> just some, you know, unimportant, really, really yeah. simple, you know, issues. Um, so you use the term body surface throughout the book as a kind of um, way of getting at what you're talking about. Can you explain what you mean by the term body surface? Yes, of course. It's something I sort of came up with myself because um, the word appearance just um, sounded too uh, imprecise to me. When we talk about appearance, we often talk about things that we can change, you know, like hairstyle or clothing or mm. uh, even uh, piercing, you know, that you can put and take out. But I wanted to speak about the things that are way less changeable, if at all, the body surface, so the height, the skin. Um, you know, uh, so I want, so the permanent sort of mark, even, even, you know, like body modification, which is outside of piercing is usually, uh, not easily re-modified if at all. Yeah. So you're really interested in, in, in getting down to, to thinking about the body. And it struck me when I was reading that this is, this is really personal in, in many ways, um, a really personal account of illnesses, a bad accident you had as a child. And it strikes me something we're often yeah. not encouraged to do, you know, think about talk about the body so did you find this this writing this book tough or um, confronting in any yes 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 it was a very difficult book to to write 
well, generally, I'm the kind of writer who normally tends to put herself online. <laughs> I sort of believe that, that um, I should be writing about stuff that is uncomfortable for me to write about because this is where usually uh, the interesting stuff in literature happens. Because, you know, like when we, in real life, when we go to supermarket sales, oh, and people say, to us, oh, dinner party, and people say, how are you? We often say, fine. Mm-hmm. But I think we sort of, in my view, at least, when we go to literature, we uh, the good reader, in my mind, at least, goes to literature to sort of get away from this daily noise of um, platitudes and to think about what it's really like feels to be a human. And this is, a, and often this is the kind of stuff we don't discuss in, in polite society or just generally full stop. So um, all my life, I um, since I had my scars, I I got them as a child. I've been very busy concealing them. <laughs> Yeah. Not just with my clothes, because all my scars are non-facial, but also with my words. So up until not that long ago, I had even some good friends who didn't know about my scars, or at least did not know about the extent of my scarring or, or how much it affected me. Um, and But I really felt this pressure to sort of write about this, because it, because it's sort of my sense that... Um, what we look like is not skin deep, as we like to say, was really strong. And I wanted to explore that idea, but I was really feeling ashamed about revealing how imperfect, you know, in, in, uh, in that commas I am. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but I did sort of, I circled, circled around the topic because I, my very first novel that I wrote at 20 was called Scars, <laughs> Surprise, Surprise. And it was fictionalized with a story of how I felt at that age about myself and, it wasn't a good book, but, you know, I tried. <laughs> and then um, my PhD was um, in exper- exploring um, experiences of women in, the, in a sense like me who have uh, non-facial scars. But it was still not exactly what I wanted. I, I really wanted to talk directly about what happened to me and, and then to, to sort of look broadly at the society, but still bringing from my own perspective. And then what changed for me in this book, what sort of made the writing difficult, but but uh, I sort of realized I can do it was that my second child was born um, and I was having a C-section and so I couldn't see him straight away when he emerged because there was like, you know, there's a screen that you have when you go through cesarean. Um, and when my child was taken out of me, I just heard this sort of weird gasp and then laughter in the room. <laughs> I couldn't be a surgery and I just uh, thought what was going on. And what I found out very soon was that my boy was born with a shock of um, very fair hair, which is very unusual. So usually babies are born, you may know, either with hardly any hair or with a lot of dark hair, but not so fair. And that was the first time of what we didn't know yet, but my child had albinism. So Mm. when Oli was diagnosed, he was three months then, he's now three and a half years old. Uh, When he was diagnosed at three months, my partner and I sort of went through a process of adjusting and grieving and reassessing sort of how we're going to live, etc. Um, it ended up actually being, you know, we didn't need to reassess so much and we didn't need to adjust so much, but, you know, I didn't know it at the time. Um, but I thought then, well, excuse my language, but I, it's time I got my shit together <laughs> because um, it's time I sort of, I wanted to, to talk about my body and I want to talk about bodies like that of my son, bodies that you cannot conceal, but they are different and you just feel they are different. 
Uh, and so once my once I had that, that additional sort of urgency to write a book, and I also sort of wanted to swing much further away from my own story, then I found the the guts to write a book. But it was really hard. And what I found, and that I'm almost waiting to answer you question in a very roundabout way <laughs> but <laughs> I always speak like this I'm so sorry but going in circles thank you so once I sort of um started writing the book what I realized to my surprise and maybe I was very naive I don't know but I realized that what was the hardest for me actually to write about was not my scars which I was such a big secret my whole life but actually the other side of my relationship with my body, and this is what I also, uh, I also have always wanted to, to different degrees at different times, to look good. And when I was in my 20s, my early 20s, I really got, got sort of caught up in this pursuit of beauty, mm. um, which I then dealt with. But I feel, I feel like so ashamed to admit this because this may be judged so vain. And that was that sort of gave me that sort of gave me a different, a bit unexpected direction to my book because I ended up writing not just about what it means to be imperfect, but also about what it means for women in particular mm. to live in a culture where on one hand we urge to, you know, look after ourselves and make ourselves pretty and it's almost like our duty. But on the other hand, we are really also urged to sort of accept ourselves as we are and so we really what happens to a lot of women and now I used to be among them is that we sort of try to prettify ourselves but we don't talk about it or we sort of try almost to conceal. So it's almost like a no no win win situation for women. Yeah. Whatever you do, whether you look after yourself or don't look after yourself, you are open to some kind of critique around your body surface. And then we say beauty skin zip. Yeah, well I mean so I'm I when I was reading it, I was thinking, my God, the amount of money I've spent, you know, <laughs> in, in terms of all of the things that you have to buy in order to, to conform to that, like, you know, in order to not be imperfect, I suppose. And I really loved the line, a beauty may fall for the beast, but for the prince to love Cinderella, she must first undergo a makeover. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. And I'm glad, Stephanie, that you were saying this because so many women, and I used to be among them, we just don't say these things aloud or the amount of money, you know, I spent to be beautiful. You know, I, I've done... You know, I can. We can sort of make a list. <laughs> I oh can compete, but <laughs> but <laughs> so so yeah. So it's um it's almost and increasingly it's like this for men as well. I mean, I don't know what you think, but I sort of uh, research sort of shows that men increasingly you know consume more and more beauty products and preoccupied also if they. I look at my stepson who is in his um, early 20s and him and his bo- his sort of friends, they are very much aware of their bodies. They go to gym, etc. Mm, yeah, I think it's a certain subcultures of men too. Um, there's, there's a real real pressure on them to look a certain way and to be a certain way. I think that is, you're right, I think that is increasing. Yeah. Um, I was also interested in that in that section where you're talking about um, perceptions of beauty. You, you talk in a really interesting way about how that's associated with goodness. So you say... Um, a slim and fit-looking body is now our most effective proof that we're decent people and deserving citizens capable of discipline, self-control and endurance. I, I, I like that idea of, of linking, like, if you're able to control the body, that means that you're a good person. Absolutely. And that's generally sort of, of course, ties really uh, neatly with um, the Western tendency um, of, you know, um, 
elevating these ideas of mastery and discipline. It's very Puritan. It really, I mean, even though we sort of much more secular society these days, but it's very much tied with the Puritan ethos of you have to work hard, you have to show that you, you yeah. discipline yourself, etc. And I think that a lot of the sort of practices around beauty, even though they supposedly are bound with hedonism and people uh, want to be beautiful because they want all this sort of pleasure, hedonistic pleasures that are associated with beauty, but really it requires such hard work. Yes, yeah. um, it's almost like yeah, it's almost like it becomes if you if you really trim and neat and um, you know um, look <laughs> you know like you eyebrows plucked or whatever else it is today, uh, then you you're a good person because you worked really hard. Yeah, no, <laughs> and just, you weren't just sort of like just, yeah. I was just listening to somebody else talk about these sorts of issues in relation to that new um, television show in the US, Shrill, and she was talking about how. Um, overweight women are often talked about as if there's like a skinny woman that lives inside them that's you know wanting to get out and all of this and if yes you yes enough, you could get that you know yes absolutely absolutely yeah if, yeah people who are larger they particularly sort of suffer from this stigma and there's so much um i'm, I'm actually I've, i neglected to say that but um a small part of my memoir in the book is talking about uh, the fact that my mother was a larger, is a larger woman. So why would I say it was, <laughs> has mm. been in fact all her life, and how I sort of um, used to judge her as a younger woman, caught in all these sort of cultural discourses yeah. around, uh, you know, fatness, exactly like you said. But if only my mother, you know, she, if only she ate a bit less, if only she did this and that, she would have been, uh, you know, a much better person because she would be then seen. But actually, I was forgetting very conveniently that my mother was much more active physically than me, for example. Yeah. But some bodies, like bodies of my mother, they just don't want to be anything else but what they are. She has, um, a third, like she has uh, poor metabolism, for example. There's lots of different uh, reasons why people... Um, a larger and um, and also there's a matter of choice as well. I mean, people. I think if we had um, different sort of uh, attitudes to people who are larger, many more la- people will sort of not not be as slim as they are now and still may be healthier. There's so much research which shows that the link between poor health and weight is no in no way as straightforward as um, as we sort of uh, think yeah. it is. Yeah, but we're, we're very quick to judge, as you say. Um, I was also really interested in the section of the book where you talk about scars and what scars have meant throughout history and in literature. So scars are often used as a kind of shorthand yeah. test that something's wrong, that some kind of flaw on the in the inside is manifested on the outside. So I was wondering if you could talk to that idea and what the scar has meant in history and literature. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, because not only scars are often, as you were saying, to um been used in popular stories as shortcuts to show the bad guys to sort of separate the bad guys from the good guys but also scars of a really um gender nature in the way we present them now when i talk about popular narratives i'm talking about film mm. um television yeah television uh, you know popular yeah, literature and even classic literature yeah. yeah exactly exactly and i mean even even if i think about really it's not even just popular literature. I mean, think if you think about, um, well, that's not scar, that's amputation, but still it's sort of, it's still a mutilation. If you think about the story of Moby Dick, 
the Captain Ahab who, uh, um, you know, his leg was severed by a whale, and this and this severed leg becomes his whole life. I mean, his whole life is overtaken by his desire to um, revenge this whale until eventually he dies. So generally, <laughs> sort of speaking. <laughs> There's not many that, that many mutilations or particularly scars in in popular narratives, but when they do appear, they tend to signify what's out of what yeah this person's bed. Like for example, in James Bond movies, yeah, um, right. <laughs> quite a few of the villains they have scarring. And actually, interestingly enough, in the novels, James Bond is supposed to have a seen, neat, not too disfiguring, but still a scar on his face. But in the movies in Hollywood. There's no, uh, you know, they decided obviously not to spoil the beauty of the actors who play James Bond <laughs> with any scar. So he doesn't have a facial scar like in the novels. Um, so yeah, so it's either the bad guys or it's the tragic people like Captain Ahab. So if they have a mutilation, if they have um, a scar or even worse, worse in the other commas, amputation, then these people are miserable and lonely and then drink themselves or, or yeah. to death or, or some, something bad will is going to happen to them. They're recluses. Um, but then, and this is now I'm coming to sort of the gender double standards, mm. men can get away with this to some extent. <laughs> so if a man has relatively mild scarring or the scarring was acquired for some really noble reason, he saved somebody, like for example, in over, I think it's called Overlander, this TV series, Stephanie, Outlander. do you remember? Outlander. Oh, yes, all right, thank you. So Jimmy, the sort of the, the um, love object in this, <laughs> in this series, he's very handsome despite a very extensive scarring on his, on his uh, back. On his back, Because yeah. the scarring stands there for, yeah, for his sort of good deed because he tried to save his sister from rape and he got whipped yes, for this right. and he, yeah. he stood the whipping in dignity. <laughs> so his scars <laughs> sort of like supposed to signify his maleness and his and wilderness and his bravery and he's still uh, a very attractive guy. But I can't think of any narrative like this, equivalent narrative for a woman. Yeah, so no. when you see, so when you, what's that? No, I was thinking about that myself when I was reading that. I was like, yes, that's true. I can't think of any of any noble scars for women, <laughs> you know? Absolutely, yes. It's uh, We don't sort of, I mean, I haven't seen Mortal Engine yet. Maybe it's a bit different there. But so far, um, whenever you sort of see women in literature or in film or television uh, with scars, usually the scars indicate that something is wrong with them internally. So either it's... Um, uh, they really uh, they have some mental health problems and they self harm, or they uh, choose the wrong men, the kind of men who will scar them, yeah, <laughs> the well, victims, right. or lose women. Yeah, you have the whole sort of subgenre of films, in particular of uh, sex workers who get uh, scarred by their clients. Yeah. So yeah. so women really sort of can they don't have this sort of even like men have a very limited range, but some range of sort of yes of having a scar and being still considered to be attractive or good, whereas women, they, they don't have even that. And they, they're sort of usually a comprehensive victimhood. So it's not only with the scars make their lives supposedly miserable, but also this, the way the scars are acquired are usually because some, somebody, especially a man, inflicted on them or they inflicted on themselves because they're very distressed. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting. I found that really, really fascinating part of your book. But I wanted to turn now to... Thank you. No worries. It's 
I really, really found that so fascinating. But a lot of the book is taken up with interviews with people with so-called imperfect bodies that you do. Um, there's a woman with dwarfism, etc. cetera. Um, what surprised you about those interviews? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So one of the really interesting things I found is, and maybe that's, that sort of says more about me, about my naivete as opposed to how things are. But I was surprised to discover that a lot of people who themselves are imperfect, um, and again, I, I just want to remind that I use the word imperfect deliberately to sort of signify that they deviate from the norm, which is very, very close to perfection these days. So it's an ironic use of word. But um, a lot of the people with imperfections, they, and I'm including myself there completely, we actually can be just as judgmental as other people. So, so for example, I interviewed a few um, extreme body modifiers. Yes, and they sort of sneered. What's that? that? Yeah, that that really struck me in that section. Anyway, go on, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. So, yes, yeah, it, it, was, it was actually, it's true, it is an unexpected direction. I didn't think I would go in that direction either when I, before yeah. I started writing the book. But yeah, so when I interviewed uh, extreme body modifiers, they also had a lot to say about other people's how they modify their appearance. So they, for example, criticize Kardashians yeah. <laughs> or, or other people who do plastic surgery. Which I and I think that sort of really actually was useful for me this surprise because um, it sort of made me rethink the voice of the book. Because initially, when I was writing it and thinking about Oli in particular, my son who will not be able to conceal his um, difference, even if he chose to, mm. like I did, I was sort of writing to think, well, those terrible people who judge others and that, you know, like I had that sort of some degree of anger in me. And that really helped me because it made me sort of think, well, actually not being judgmental is probably not, impo it's probably impossible. It's just part of us being humans. And the more research I did into how we, react to appearance the more i thought about it i saw well, of course it's it's uh, very natural for us to um make up opinions based on how people look because we're primates and primates do gather information in this to find to be able to survive and function in social work but what but by what they see and humans don't have as acute sense of smell or hearing as you know animals have um and it, we do need to sort of uh, it, it's impossible to go through life without having any preconceptions mm -hmm. uh, so it sort of helped me to to change the tone of my voice and rather than make it sort of angry to, tone or, or at least I hope I change it but actually make it much more understanding and pondering and I think you it seems to me I mean I hope so at least that to change things to to bring more sort of attention to body diversity I think it's better if you sort of come up come and you say to other people well look I have my biases too and I understand you completely and let's think why things happen rather than sort of um teaching somebody or blaming somebody yeah no I thought that um, was, so that, that was a good surprise <laughs> yeah no I thought that was really interesting that you you kind of admit to a voyeurism you admit to a kind of fascination with different sorts of bodies that I think was really unusual but we all have that reaction we just don't talk about it yeah Oh, thank you for saying this. Yeah, look, I, I did. I was a bit sort of worried about saying it or not. But really, I think all writers also are voyeurs. And, and I think writers who will deny it, they may not be very honest because, you know, I mean, the act of writing, um, unless you're completely writing just about yourself, but most writers, even if they write memoirs, 
I expect they would be sort of exploring other people, these people who are sort of important in their lives there as well. And I think all the act of writing, um, at least the way I see it in my idealistic eyes, but it's, it's supposed to be an act of empathy, of trying to sort of understand what life is like for yourself, but also for people who are not you. Yeah. Um, and so, and so you can't sort of, if you're not deeply curious and you know, voyeurism is such a umbrella word, such a blanket word. There is a sexual voyeurism where you, you actually get sexual satisfaction from, from being a voyeur. Then there is a sort of really disturbing, I think, curiosity when we just sort of want to know very intimate things just to titillate ourselves about other people. But there's also the voyeurism, which is about genuinely wanting to know what it's like to be another person because we only have one life to live. And it's really, I mean, I find it um, in my previous book, In the Dangerous Bride, I talked a lot, it was a book that explored my experiences in non-monogamy. And I talked a lot there about how probably one of the biggest reasons why I always wanted to be non-monogamous was because I always felt like I wanted to live many alternative lives. <laughs> and it's not just in terms of um, my love life. Uh, it's also, I've tried different occupations. I used to be an academic. I used to stitch shoes in a factory <laughs> and do nightclub parties, all sorts of things. So, so I think um, this voyeuristic impulse is a very natural impulse, particularly for writers. Yeah, no, I agree. That was it just... That was so honest too. <laughs> Thank you, but if, of course, having said that, uh, you, I, it's always good to sort of keep yourself in check, and I, I try to. I don't know if it succeeds, but it's always sort of good to keep interrogating yourself as you write and think, well, do I? Am I really interested in what this person is saying uh, out of some unhealthy curiosity? I'm really interested because I want to understand them and, and sort of be in their shoes and see what it's like to be them. Well, I think that, that, that that's absolutely what comes through in the book. I wanted to talk um, before we wrap up. Um, at the end of the book, you comment that you're not quite sure what you've learnt. You're not quite sure if there's a kind of overarching message to be kind of gleaned. How has your own relationship with your scars and with your um, with your son's body, um, has, how has that sort of changed over the course of writing this book or has it changed at all? Sure. So, so what I said sort of at the end of the book is um, that... I don't have any recipe for how to change things for the better, <laughs> but I do have some ideas and suggestions, which I talk and I'll just say very briefly, but I sort of talk about how I would really like us to shift uh, conversation a bit more away from body image, which is how people feel about themselves and more towards how do we actually um, stretch people's tolerance. Uh, not stretch, sorry, that's not that word. How do we extend people's tolerance towards uh, looks that are not the norm mm. and I'm talking about visibility and uh, and also about how it's important to make space for grief and not sort of expect people to uh, monumentally accept themselves when you know when living in an imperfect body is not so easy um, but what I meant by uncertainty was that yeah for myself I still couldn't answer the some questions by the end of the book such as for example Yes, my scars gave me some advantages, but was it still worth for me being scarred, for example? What would be better? Would I would I be, be the same person if I didn't have scars? Well, that's probably not. <laughs> but the book did change for me something, which I did not know yet at the time when I was finishing it. Because since the book uh, was out, I spoke about it quite a lot in public, but also with my friends. I sort of feel almost like 
I can't say coming out because I don't know what it's like to be a gay person to come out into the world, but it's sort of a little bit in some way. It is in some ways like coming out in that suddenly I'm not like alone with my secret. Suddenly when I'm, when I, for example, see, um, uh, parents of my, uh, or friends of my children, they say, Oh, let's go together to the public pool. I feel a bit easier to be open with them, for example, and say, well, you know, I actually, uh, not yet there. I'm not feel comfortable enough to be around in my swimming suit. <laughs> mm. Um, you know, so that that was really good, and I think uh, the more I sort of, I sort of talk about it, the more I, the more I'm out there, the more I, the less I grieve at the moment about my body. Yeah. Uh, so as I was saying in the book, I don't believe that grand sort of like real, very deep self acceptance is easy to achieve. Yeah. I will. I sort of think about self acceptance more as a verb rather than a noun. It's something in process. So oh you sort of sometimes you feel better about yourself. Sometimes you feel worse. Because I think appearance is a bit like a. It's like almost like a weather in our lives. So sometimes the weather is really strong and it's out there, and sometimes it's at the background. Um, but I think. Um, but I think it's sort of having this book out there so far made me a little bit more comfortable in my scarred skin. <laughs> Yeah. As corny as it sounds. Oh, well, no. I mean, that's, that's what we all want. <laughs> um, I, think <laughs> I think that's a lovely place to wrap this up. Um, thank you so much, Lee. That's been so fascinating. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me. <laughs> that's all right. So you can buy Imperfect at any good bookshop, um, preferably an indie one. And we'll see you again in um, two weeks. This has been From the Lighter.